To help cure fatigue, I used to chew a root of ginseng as I walked along. This kept up my spirits. It gives an uncommon warmth and vigor to the blood. It cheers the heart of a man that has a bad wife and makes him look down with great composure upon the crosses of the world. It will make old age amiable by rendering it lively, cheerful, and good-humored. Colonel William Byrd, History of the Dividing Line, written between 1728 and 1736. This is Our Numinous Nature, and I'm your host, Philippe. We'll be hearing the profound stories of people with a deep connection to the natural world, from herbalists to hunters, wildlife rehabilitators to trappers, artists to homesteaders. The list goes on. My hope is to thread a needle that weaves together the many nature-related passions through stories of reverence. In nature, I've found meaning, a richness for life that grows with each new day. Maybe you feel the same. Or maybe you long to. This week on the podcast, we are getting into the wild world of ginseng with Ed Daniels of Shady Grove Botanicals. Ed grows ginseng. He does some lecturing on forest farming um, he's a root buyer, and uh, him and his wife, Carol, they make um, a lot of medicine, which is for sale at ShadyGroveBotanicals.com. I put the link in the profile. So in this episode, the themes are certainly ginseng, digging it, um, the culture around digging it, ginseng, sustainability, learning how to grow uh, valuable plants such as ginseng, and some of the grittiness that is kind of in the surrounding communities where much of this ginseng is dug up in the Appalachian region. Uh, Ed tells some pretty heartbreaking stories about drug addiction, poverty, and um, a really intense story at the very end of this podcast about how drugs in a community affect children. So definitely stick around for that story because it's pretty intense. And what I've come away from this podcast thinking about and is I'm sure this is also true of inner cities and impoverished parts of America in the, in the big cities like Baltimore or parts of Brooklyn that I live, that lived around the feeling when I hear Ed talk about a lot of his experiences in his community is that the only people helping Appalachians are Appalachians. And I'm just, uh, it's pretty amazing hearing from people who take it upon themselves to help their neighbors and the few, you know, the, the people within the few hundred people that live in their community. I really feel like that has been a theme that has been coming up on this podcast. Um, certainly when I was down in Kentucky hearing about the flood, this one kind of has the same, uh, some of the same themes. If you're interested in learning more about um, the Plant a Seed nonprofit that Ed and Carol have been working on to help kids learn how to grow food and potentially in the future valuable plants like ginseng, 
uh, just check them out. I think the easiest way would be to reach out to them at shadygrovebotanicals.com. Um, if you're interested in learning how to grow things like ginseng and black cohosh, golden seal, again, highly medicinal, um, also profitable plants. If you're interested in learning how to grow these for fun or for your, your home apothecary or for the potential of making a profit in the future, um, there are a handful of nonprofits who have hired me to illustrate for them. Um, I don't personally have very much hands-on experience with growing these things. I'm just starting to do stuff like that. Um, my experience is, is illustrating uh, what they're trying to educate about. So if that sounds interesting to you, if you're in the Ohio region, you can reach out to Rural Action. Um, they are selling ginseng seeds. They have plenty of information for farmers on how to learn how to do stuff like the forest farming the wild simulated. If you are in New England, you can reach out to Northeast Forest Farming Coalition, and that's going to be pretty similar. Their focus is on educating and resources for people looking how to forest farm. Uh, the same goes for if you're in West Virginia, there's the West Virginia Forest Farming Initiative that I believe is through the U Mountain Center. So all of these folks have hired me as an illustrator. Very thankful to them for uh, commissioning work from me. And it, it all sounds extremely fascinating. So if you want to have your own ginseng patch in your backyard that down the line um, you can use to give to medicine to your friends and family or to make a few extra bucks, check out all of those um, nonprofits. Before we get into the readings, uh, I have two books I want to read from on this episode. Um, I would like to say thank you to the Patreon patrons. Um, I have a Patreon account. It's patreon.com forward slash Our Numerous Nature. Links in the show notes. Uh, this is really helpful for me to um, set aside the time and expenses of keeping this podcast going. It's just me. I so thoroughly enjoy making this. and I'm so appreciative of everyone listening to it. And for those who are helping out on Patreon, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. So we have Jess Paget, Ash Barron, Rachel Hawkshaw, on Stanley of Pyramid Metaphysical Store in Waynesboro, Virginia, Bailey Grenert, Franklin Renshaw, Jamie Nudd, my old buddy when we were filmmakers up in New York in film school and after that making uh, film school projects, James Mann, Leslie Peterson Cohen, Rambler, Ryan Goechner, and Tyler Lively, and Water Light, also in West Virginia. So thank you to all of you and everyone at the lower tiers on the Patreon. Really appreciate it. So the first book I wanted to read from is called Dursu the Trapper, a true account by Vladimir Arsenev. So Vladimir Arsenev, this is a memoir, this is true, and he was an um, explorer and a captain in the early 1900s, he went to Siberia on scientific explorations. He went to the, the Siberian Far East, into the taiga. And between 1902 and 1930, he went on a bunch of expeditions to study the flora and fauna. And in that, he came across this man named Dursu, who is an indigenous of the Gold tribe, 
And Dursu is like this, he was like a loner. His family had all died and he was a lone hunter. And he decided to guide Arsenov and the rest of the party through the wilderness. This is such an awesome book. And it is, it, it culminates in a very profound way. There was also a film made in the 70s by Akira Kurosawa, the Japanese master. And I would say that this film is a masterpiece. It is in Russian, but you can find it, I think, on YouTube, uh, the full movie with subtitles, um, or it's on Amazon. It is really profound. And like I said, the book and the film both come to an incredibly profound ending about the clash between society and civilization and wildness and the indigenous way of life. And the book is so amazing because it's about this powerful friendship that crosses almost that crosses an almost um, uncrossable bridge of, of cultures. You have Arsenev, who is this Russian, and you have Dursu, who is this man of the woods, this indigenous man of the woods. And they become incredible friends to one another. And the book is almost like a, almost like a love story between these two men, just uh, how much they appreciate, appreciate each other. So I'm going to read a handful of um, excerpts that have to do with ginseng, because uh, as you may know, ginseng grew all throughout um, the Far East. Few reach the very heart of the taiga. It is too vast. The wayfarer is ever struggling with the force of vegetation. Many secrets does the taiga conceal in her breast, hiding them jealously from prying eyes of man. She seems morose and grim. That is the first impression. But the man who grows to know her better soon becomes accustomed to her and pines if taken away from the forest, if he does not see forest for long. It is only outwardly that the taiga seems dead. In truth, she is full of life. Dursu and I walked on unheardly, watching the birds. In the clumps of undergrowth here and there flitted a brisk little rustic bunting. And I caught an occasional glimpse of the little Usarian woodpeckers. Most interesting of these was the green one with the golden crest. It hammered away busily at the trees, paying no attention to the approach of men. A few dusky thrushes flew across, some jays flew off, and once we startled a merlin, which flew low and soon was lost among the trees. Dragonflies appeared over the water. A wagtail gave chase, but the insect was too quick for it. Suddenly behind me, a nutcracker uttered his cry of alarm. Dursu signed to me to stop. Wait, Captain, he said. Him come here. And in fact, the sound approached. There was no doubt that the timid bird was escorting something through the wood. I was right. In five minutes, a man appeared among the thickets. He stopped dead, as though petrified, and his face showed great alarm. I knew him at once for a ginseng seeker. He was dressed in the usual shirt and breeches of blue daba, skin moccasins, and a birch bark hat upon his head. In front hung an oiled apron to protect his trousers from the dew and to his belt behind there hung a badger skin, so that he could sit on a log without wetting them. From his girdle hung a knife, a piece of bone for digging up ginseng roots, and a bag with flint and steel. In his hands he carried a long staff for scraping away grass and leaves on the ground. 
Dersu told him not to be afraid, and he came nearer. He was a man of about 55, already turning gray. His hands and face were burnt to a uniform greenish red. He was unarmed. When the Chinaman realized that we meant no harm, he sat on a log, pulled a rag out of his shirt, and wiped his face. The old man's expression showed extreme exhaustion. So this was a hunter for ginseng. In this way, he was a sort of hermit who buried himself in the mountains and entrusted himself to the protection of the spirits of the forest. In answer to our inquiry, he told us that he had a cabin on the upper waters of the Danzai. But in his search for the wonder-working route, he sometimes wandered so far from home that it took him weeks to make his way back. He told us how to find the way to his cabin and invited us to stop there. After a little rest, the old fellow bid us farewell, picked up his staff, and went on his lonely way. Long I followed him with my eyes. Once he stopped, picked up a handful of moss, and put it on a tree. Farther on, he tied a knot in a twig of a bird cherry. Those are signals to show others who might come that way that he had worked it for ginseng and drawn blank. There is true philosophy in that, to prevent the seekers walking over the same ground and wasting time. In a few minutes, the old man disappeared from view, and we continued on our road. Dursu walked slowly and, as usual, kept his eye attentively on the ground at his feet. Suddenly he stopped and, without taking his eyes off some object, began to remove his knapsack, lay down his rifle and prop, threw down his axe, and lay full length on the ground and began praying. I thought he had gone crazy. Dursu exclaimed, what's up? Pantasui, he cried, ginseng. Here there was a mass of herbage but which was the ginseng I did not know. Dursu showed it to me. I saw a small herbaceous plant about 14 inches high with four leaves. Each leaf consisted of five divisions, of which the middle was the longest, the outside ones the shortest. It had already flowered and the fruit appeared. This was in the form of small rounded cases arranged like those of umbelliferous plants. The cases had not yet opened or scattered their seed. Dursu cleared the weeds all around it, then picked off all the seed cases and tied them up in a bit of rag. Then he asked me to hold the plant up with my hand while he dug up the root. He worked extremely carefully, taking every precaution to avoid tearing the fibers. When he had got it out, he took it to the brook and started carefully washing off the soil. I helped him as best I could. Gradually, the earth came away and in a few minutes, we could examine the root. It was four and one-fourth inches long and forked, that is to say, a male. So that was the famous ginseng, whose magic power is sovereign amongst all ills of the flesh and restores to the aged the vigor of youth. Dursu cut off the plant and packed it, together with the root in moss in a roll of bark. Then he muttered some prayer, slipping on his knapsack again, picked up his weapon and prop, and exclaimed, You lucky, Captain! On the road, I asked the gold what he was going to do with his ginseng. He said he wanted to sell it and buy cartridges with the money. Then I decided to buy the ginseng myself and offered him a better price than the Chinese would give. When I told him of this decision, the result was quite unexpected. Dursu thrust his hand inside his jacket, pulled out the roll, and handed it to me, saying it was a gift. I declined, but he insisted. I saw that my refusal offended him, and so accepted. It was only afterwards that I learned 
that it was the custom to repay gifts by gifts of equal value. During the night I awoke. It was long after midnight. It seemed to me that all nature was slumbering. By the fire was sitting Dursu. At first glance I could see that he had not laid down to sleep. He was glad I was awake and started brewing tea. I noticed that the old fellow was in an excited state, and he waited on me with extra attention and did everything he could to keep me awake. I humored him and said I did not feel sleepy. Dursu flung more wood on the fire and built up a big blaze. Then he stood up and began to talk in a solemn voice. Captain, he said, now me talk, you listen all time. He began to relate how he had lived formerly, how he had been left all alone in the world and earned his living by the chase. His rifle always saved the situation for him. He sold antlers and in exchange with the Chinese took ammunition, tobacco, and material for clothing. It never entered his head that his eyes might fail or that it was impossible ever to buy new ones for all the money in the world. It was now some six months that he had noticed that his eyesight was growing weaker. He thought it would pass away, but today had shown that his hunting was over. It terrified him. Then he remembered my words, that with me he would always find a shelter and a loaf of bread. Thank you, Captain. Big thank you. Then suddenly he went down on his knees and bowed his head to the ground. I dashed forward to pick him up and started telling him that it was the other way around, that I owed my life to him, and if he came to live with me, it would give me very great pleasure. To distract him from his gloomy thoughts, I suggested brewing another lot of tea. Wait, Captain, me not finish talk. Then he continued to relate the story of his life. He told me how, when he was still a young man, he had learnt from an old Chinaman how to hunt for ginseng and learnt its signs. He had never sold any roots, but taken them with him to the upper reaches of the Lefu and planted them there. The last time he had visited his plantations was 15 years ago. The roots had all taken well. There were altogether 22 of them. He did not know if they were all right still. They probably were, as they were planted in a most remote spot, far from any trace of human movement. That all to you, he concluded his long speech. I was astonished. I began to urge him to sell those roots to the Chinese and get the money, but Dursu insisted. Me no need, he explained. Me little life left. Soon finish, soon die. Me very much want give you pansui, ginseng. In his eyes, there was such an imploring expression that it was irresistible. My refusal hurt him. I agreed, but made him give me his word that at the end of the expedition, he would come back with me to Khabarovsk. Dursu consented. We decided to go up to the Lefu in the spring and look for the priceless roots. Dursu flung still more wood on the fire. The bright flame flickered upwards and lit up the bushes and cliffs with a ruddy glow. The silent witnesses of our talk and the mutual obligations we had undertaken. So those were just a handful of little excerpts about ginseng throughout Dursu the Trapper. I cannot recommend that book highly enough. It is considered the Russian equivalent of the Lewis and Clark expedition. Obviously, it's 100 years later. It's early 1900s as opposed to early 1800s for Lewis and Clark. Now, to get to ginseng here in the Appalachian Mountains, I wanted to read a little bit from Wildwood's Wisdom, Encounters with the Natural World by Doug Elliott. 
I'm sure many of you know him. He is a wonderful guy that I hope to get on the podcast at some point. He's a folklorist, herbalist, writer, um, a performer, singer, storyteller, uh, and, and he just he's such a wonderful guy, such a character. And um, I highly recommend this book if you have kids. It explores um, mythology, uh, ecology, and his own life experiences all about different things in the mountains of North Carolina, whether that is skinning a groundhog or um, observing raccoons or hunting ginseng with his um, mentors. So here's an excerpt from his ginseng chapter, and then let's get into this awesome conversation with Ed of Shady Grove Botanicals. This unusual herb has created a unique link between North America and the Orient. Orientals are the world's principal connoisseurs and consumers of ginseng. For more than 3,000 years, the Chinese have used ginseng as a rejuvenating tonic and attribute almost magical healing properties to the root. On rare occasions, the root may be branched in such a way that it makes a human shape. When this occurs, single roots are said to be worth immense sums of money. In fact, the name ginseng is derived from the Chinese gen-seng, meaning man-shaped. From its long-standing reputation as a kind of panacea comes its botanical name, Panax. There are essentially two species of commercial ginseng, Panax ginseng, which grows in the Orient, and Panax quinquefolius, five-leaved, which is our American ginseng. Ginseng commerce between East and West owes its beginnings to a French Jesuit missionary, Father Jarteau, who traveled through Manchuria. In 1714, Jarteau published an article entitled The Description of the Tartarian Plant Ginseng. The same year the publication reached another Jesuit, François Lafiteau, in Montreal, Canada. Father Lafiteau showed one of Jarteau's drawings of the plant to a group of Mohawk Indians. They immediately recognized it and took him to a place where the root was abundant. He unearthed a few roots and sent them back to France, where their identity was verified. Soon, a small shipment was on its way to China to test for a potential market. In Peking, the roots were found to be of excellent quality and were sold for their weight in gold. The news of this scale spread rapidly and precipitated what has been called the Canadian ginseng rush of 1715. A great deal of frenzied trading ensued, as practically every able-bodied woodsman, trapper, and Indian scoured the forest for the newly treasured resource. However, by the 1750s, ginseng was becoming so scarce that it was no longer profitable to gather, and the market more or less folded. Farther south in the new colonies, however, the ginseng trade was just beginning. By 1775, one sloop had sailed from Boston to China with 110,000 pounds on board. Other ships loaded with ginseng were sailing from New York and Philadelphia. Large amounts of ginseng were being hauled out of various parts of the Appalachians on the back of mountain traders and their animals. In 1784, on a trip to his lands on the Kanawha River, in what is now West Virginia, George Washington wrote in his journal, I meet with many mules and packs laden with ginseng going east over the Forbes Braddock Road. Even Daniel Boone got into the ginseng business for a while, though with uneven success. 
He managed to ruin several tons of it when his ginseng-laden keelboat swamped in the Ohio River on the island between Gallipolis, Ohio, and Point Pleasant, West Virginia in the spring of 1788. In the late 1800s, the successful cultivation of American ginseng launched a new boom, and by the turn of the century, hundreds of plantations were started. But in 1904, most of them were wiped out by a leaf blight, a spray mixture containing copper sulfate and quicklime called the Bordeaux mixture was finally developed as a deterrent to the leaf disease. Unfortunately, it was too late for many growers whose plants had already gone beyond the point of no return. In the years following the blight disaster of 1904, ginseng trade with the Orient steadily increased, and in recent years, it has proven to be a fairly dependable business. American ginseng is still cultivated and gathered wild from Canada to the southern Appalachians. Because of its seasonal nature, however, the ginseng merchant must deal in other materials as well. It is not unusual to see signs in front of mountain junkyards reading, We buy scrap metal, iron, copper, radiators, batteries, wool, fur, herbs, and ginseng. Top prices paid. Uh, today we're here in Mill Creek, West Virginia, uh, Randolph County, one of the biggest counties in Randolph. And we're here today to do a little bit of uh, a talk about what we do. The biggest county in West Virginia, you mean? Uh-huh. Nice. Okay, you said the biggest county in Randolph. Oh, so my bad. It's one of the biggest counties in West Virginia? One of the biggest counties in West Virginia, and it's Randolph County. Very nice, very nice. So... Now, tell me if I'm wrong about any of these. You are a ginseng farmer? Yes, sir. Ginseng buyer? Yes, sir. And a ginseng hunter? Or used to be? Yes, I do all that. Plus, we manufacture products from ginseng, everything from the ginseng top, the, the foliar part, to the roots. As we buy them, we select out roots that may be damaged that wouldn't live to be replanted uh, we may dry those and put them into uh, capsule form or make tinctures with those roots yes so you have you sell all your medicinal products as well as everything we else. utilize every part of the plant and we really encourage folks to go after the tops and leave the root in the ground because then that root will produce a new top and more berries for next year and Long, long years of uh, probably eight to 10 years, you'll see a population growth of a large number of ginseng plants. If you leave them. If you leave them, that's right. You got to let them berries ripen and let them hit the ground. Then you can cut the top off and take the top, dry it. Or, you know, we buy some that's fresh. Um, again, it's all in the uh, process of what we do with that top. Very cool. And it has the same medicinal properties as the roots. It's just for years, it's always just been left in the woods. But uh, in the last eight years, it seems like it's really growing in uh, popularity through herbalists. So to make this harvest of ginseng sustainable, we want to leave that root in the ground to grow more tops mm. and produce more berries. Mm. So here we are. This is what? Mid-September. Yeah. And we are in the first quarter of the ginseng season. Is that right? Yes, sir. Okay, so, I mean, for me, growing up in the suburbs of Northern Virginia, I didn't even know this was something that existed. Once I started getting hired by United Plant Savers and all these other nonprofits all about 
forest farming. I started learning all about ginseng a lot through Susan Leopold from United Plant Savers. I used to live on her property. Right. So she taught me so much about ginseng. So this is a whole universe. It's an incredible universe. And, and uh, I mean, there's so much to it. But uh, so we are in the middle of this ginseng season here in West Virginia. You're a ginseng buyer. Like what, like what does that mean? Like what are, what are you doing right now? What is ginseng season to a buyer? Well, you know, there's there's still a lot of folks out there that don't understand that there is a season or maybe they don't abide by it. Um, right down to the fact that ginseng can't be sold yet dry. Uh, only the fresh roots could be sold at this point. Uh, I think September 15th is the start of the dry season. And, uh, you know, maybe once a week we have folks come in and, they have dry asking how much I'm paying, and it's it's just not the dry season yet. So, uh, again, when we get the live roots, what's really good is, you know, as a, a buyer or slash broker, I can look over those roots and grade them for different people who want to purchase them from me right down to root stock uh, that would probably be best to be put back in the ground because they're a little young, a little small to be uh, exported and um you know, we want to try to keep that ginseng alive as long as possible. Uh, the bigger the root, the more value of the root, and possibly the more tops and more berries that it will produce. So um, keep keep in mind that we want the bigger roots, the older roots, and leave those little ones in the ground. Don't dig them. Don't bring them in. Especially don't dry them because once it's dry, it's gone. But if you bring it in fresh, I do select out. Uh, I don't buy underage sang. It's just sometimes they're not the desired ones for the market. And we have uh, proper places that we can move those to to grow those to a larger root. And I didn't even know that there was like a season. So I saw you guys post about the permitted season to dig in the national forest. Yeah. And so I went and got the license. Yep. And it is, I mean, a million times more regulated than any hunting license. Yes. Like for one, there's only, it's, it's a quota. It was mm -hmm. like 50 licenses. Is that for the whole state or is that for the region? That's probably for that particular region. I think there's four different sections here okay. uh, in West Virginia. I bought three of the four permits. Mm. and um, Oh, for, for three regions? For, for three of the four regions, I bought a permit. I believe at one time there was one permit for all, but mm. I think they realized that there was a little more money to be made. And so they, they have a permit for a, a certain section now. So And um, and it I mean, again, not like hunting. It was you yes. have to do it in person. Yep. You gotta wait in line because it's first come, first serve. Yep. So eight in the morning on whatever the date was, I was yep. in line. It was so neat to be just to listen to the like the real deal like ginseng hunters mm -hmm. talking. Yep. Like they're a type of person. It's you know, everyone's obviously a unique person, but there's like a kind of guy mm -hmm. that is like the ginseng hunter. It was so cool being in line with these guys, listening to them talk. Now, the the older guys that I deal with, the what I call the true ginsangers, um, they have ethics. Yes. Because they go back to some of the similar spots maybe every three years to harvest. They don't hit the same spot year after year. You know, you got to remember, though, ginseng can and will lay dormant. It won't produce a top sometimes as many as five to six years. And what's going on is maybe too much light come into that area or the force was uh, disturbed by logging or a pipeline or something mm. similar to that. 
And, you know, ginseng likes the shade. It's 80% shade, 20% light. So, you know, you put a lot more light into an area than that ginseng may lay dormant until the undergrowth comes up and covers it up, briars or whatever, mm. or the small saplings come up and provide a little shade before it'll produce that top. But they, the first year after a logging, I have seen them come up and, mm. and actually get red. They look like they're, we call them sunburnt. Mm. and the top's normally a nice green, and then it turns yellow. But if you see one that's a little bit red, nine times out of ten, it's probably been in close to a logged area that more light's coming in. Mm. Now, you were saying the old-time ginseng hunters have, like, an ethic, and what I found interesting was um, while I got the license, it comes with a whole bunch of... Um, rules and regulations. Rules, regulations, also suggestions yep. on how mm. to, to keep this going. Yep. And it was so interesting to read that. And then, are you familiar with the Foxfire books? Yes. Okay, so anyone listening who isn't, they're a compilation of books that were recorded by kids, I think high schoolers in the 60s or 70s. They went into the mountains. They um, did interviews to record mountain culture, whether Mm -hmm. making banjos, how to dry a a groundhog hide, mm-hmm. ginsenging, bear hunting, everything is everything. in there. Yep. So I just finished reading the ginseng chapter and it was so interesting that the, the people they were interviewing were saying the exact same thing that are in these regulations with the permit, which is don't dig anything under three pronged mm-hmm. and always replant the seeds, the berries. And it's interesting to see what like the law is telling you to do is the exact same thing that was in like the old time wisdom. Well, I'll take you back a little bit further than those um, recordings and books. Um, my great-grandfather, who um, I've learned a lot from, um, his method, and there's other old folks that I've talked to, is probably the most sustainable way, and it puts it back. They used to cut the neck off of the ginseng root and plant it back. That's your scars, and, you know, um, today you have to leave that intact because that's what CITES needs to make it legal to ship it out of the country. It has to have five scars, meaning a five-year-old ginseng. Um, but the old, old folks, and I'm talking late 1800s, the way they harvested it was they would dig the root, which was a mature root. They would cut the neck off and plant them scars back. And it would produce a top the very next year, and it would be a big top with berries, which would keep that plant more or less alive. It wouldn't have the big root at the bottom until several years later, but that plant or that root was still producing a plant that was viable because of the seed production. So, um, you know, there's, there's some more things, there's more evidence that backs up what I'm telling you that I learned from my great-grandfather. Um, and the older men that come in here that's in their late 70s would tell you the same thing. Mm. And um, unfortunately, it's the laws that's changed that may actually be hurting the, the life of ginseng. Oh, I see. Interesting. And what you, for, for someone listening who's maybe never seen it, a ginseng root, so you mean there's like— The shoulder is the top part of the root itself— that will sort of round over and come into a small 
um, smaller than a pencil, not as small as the pencil lead, but then there's little offset scars that zigzag back and forth. Yeah, and each can't. year that's a growth bud. Okay. You know, it's showing the age of that plant. Okay. So, you know, that is what is needed intact to these roots, dry or fresh for commerce, especially through CITES if it's being shipped out of the country. But that same rule or law could be what's hindering ginseng from being very sustainable and and being on the – it's actually, you know, an endangered plant in a way. So, mm. you know, there's certain things that could be – jeopardizing the ginseng not just the fact that we've got too many people out there digging it's the way we dig it and the way we put it back and um so you're saying each kink on that neck is mm -hmm. a year yes sir okay interesting so i know what you mean i, I was looking at that mm -hmm. um do you find speaking about just the ethics and um that how at risk ginseng is do you think that what the license is allowing is sustainable. The license allows for 97 plants. I like, think that's 97, 24 plants per day in a given, say, section. Um, and three-prong only. Three-prong and, th and up. Three-prong and up. But you know what's really crazy? You know, we, we can sit here and talk about three-prongs producing berries that are four or five years old. But um, I have seen a two-prong with a very short top, maybe 10 inches, very small plant that was 40-some years old. Wow. So, you know, a ginseng root is a lot like a man. You know, you hit your prime maybe late 80s, or late 80s, late 20s, early 30s, and then that root may go backwards. You know, it may have been a big three-ounce root at one time, but wow. it may shrink back and go backwards. But the medicinal value of that root is much better. You know, the, if you measured those little curls or those nicks that we're talking about and we're calling the neck the ginseng, for one inch of that neck, that's equivalent to 10 years. That's rule of thumb. So if you had one that had a six-inch neck, that's 60 years. You know, and those, mm. those are the stronger medicine, not really due to the fact the size, but it's the age. So if you were to approach the Korean market, Koreans like the bigger, bulkier roots. The Chinese like the older, long necks that mm -hmm. we're speaking of. So there's different people looking at different things. Uh, color of ginseng is another factor. A lighter color ginseng may be grown up to 1,800 uh, feet in elevation. You get above 18 and up close to 4,000 here in West Virginia. You get more of a golden brown and when your buyer comes in and sees the collar, you can see his eyes light up. That's the collar he's looking for. All ginseng is not the same. Well, the ones I found yesterday, I was probably at 3,200. Yes. So that's viable. You'll find those to be uh, a darker bronze or gold color. And that's, that's what the, the certain market's looking for. Mm. Mm -hmm. Okay. So... This podcast, a lot of people who listen to this are like homesteaders. Right. They do small farming. They're herbalists. They know a, they know a million times more than me about a lot of these subject matters. Right. But for the person who's listening who doesn't know anything about ginseng, can you just say, like, what is this market? Like, can you just give us a little summary of how there are people farming and digging here in the mountains, and then this is mainly going all the way to Asia? Like, can you describe, like... Well, you know... And this um, goes back hundreds of years. It goes back thousands of years. Okay. Thousands. I mean, what's, what's really crazy is um, 
Americans don't realize the value of ginseng. Only the diggers. They're always looking for more money because it's a hard job, you know, and, and the market, unfortunately, won't pay them more money because it's controlled. Um, believe it or not, once this, this ginseng hits the boat and it's going overseas, the buyers have to be down and out. They don't want any, any ginseng setting that on the docks or anything before they buy again. They try to drop the price. So once the market opens, say, uh, for the dry here in the middle of the month, the price will be low because it finished off high last year. You know, they, as in controllers, don't want the price to go any higher than what it hit last year. Supply and demand plays a big part on it. They can only sit so long without their ginseng. They want it every day because they know the value. It's an adaptogen. You know, if you've got liver problems or a heart problem, high blood pressure, stress, it will adapt your body to deal with that and help regulate how you heal. So, you know, they know by years and years, like 5,000 years we're talking about of experience, that it's, it's very useful and very healthy for the human body. So they'll only sit so long. So a lot of your dry market will be maybe Thanksgiving to Christmas. And the old diggers, they know this because that's when they want their money. A lot of them want to sell some at Thanksgiving to get a new rifle or to get their stuff to take off for the hunting season. And then at Christmas, a lot of people will sell right before the week of Christmas so they can get their kids some nice gifts and, you know, do things right for their family and that's good traditions but you know to be honest with you it's so controlled the price is so controlled by big money and they'll set and they want you to wait and wait and wait and eventually you hear maybe it's going up 25 cents or a dollar or two dollars a pound 25 dollars a pound and you might move and you might want to sell it. But some years, those guys will sit on their saying and they'll wait till the following year to see what happens. They, mm. They're waiting for a better market. And it's, it's control. It is. And it's a shame because, like, here in West Virginia, I know that our roots are, are valuable. And I know the market's needing our higher elevation saying. But through the economics, they think that West Virginians will do more for less. Mm. They want... They want to pay less. Well, this is how it always goes. Yeah, it you does. Got the, you but have- the same route in North Carolina will fetch $100 more on a pound mm-hmm. because those folks down there make more money. It costs more to live. Mm. So they're playing on the economics. They're saying, well, West Virginia Taking advantage. They're taking advantage. And it's, it's bad, you know, and they look at me, well, can't you pay more? I was like, I can only pay what my, pay, or my buyers are paying me, you know, and, and to work that out, you know, it's tough sometimes because today with Facebook, you see these guys posting, I've got this much and I got this much per pound, but they live in a different state. Mm. You know, if you live in upstate New York and Pennsylvania, you may get five, six hundred dollars a pound starting off on dry sang where West Virginia may only pay four or four fifty, maybe five hundred tops mm. because they expect more for less out of people here in the mountains. And it, it's sad. It is. And it's just commerce. You know, they, they they play it hard and it's a tough market. And whenever you're there and you're buying and selling, you see it, you feel it because I deal with those guys coming in that's trying to get that little extra money for mm-hmm. Christmas. And these guys that are multimillionaires are, are putting hurting on me just as well. So you're buying from locals. Yes. And then, I mean, I know... I farm sang too, but yes. at the same time, you know, I select out maybe some prime fresh roots to put into our farm that will produce nice tops and berries. And that's, that's how the industry goes. You want to grow some big roots to produce 
lots of berries so you can have juveniles or, you know, new sang. So, you know, the only way you can grow fast is to invest in it. You don't make much money for the first five years. It's, it's you're putting back into it so you get your own crops growing to where you're producing seed. People can buy seed for $50, $60 a pound. My seed, I wouldn't sell less than $200 a pound because it's, the genetics is wild, you know, and that's because I usually harvest the roots myself to, to plant. I'll select a few from a couple of quality diggers that I know to plant, but, you know, you got to have trust in them because maybe it was dug along a power line. Maybe that power line sprayed. I don't want that. Mm, you know, I'm, I'm looking for a totally organic, healthy plant that's not doctored up and, um, you can't trust everybody on that. Well, I bought a twenty a twenty dollar little baggie of your seeds that I'm planning to put in our little patch of woods. We've got right. probably a half acre or a quarter acre in the woods. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're bringing up a lot of things I want to ask. So in the Foxfire books, it's saying how there's always been this this um, time immemorial kind of like uh, not a clash but a, a tension between the digger and the buyer because supposedly the buyer can always tell if it's wild or if it's cultivated. Do you feel like you can really tell the difference? Yeah. Um, fortunately, you'll get a lot of the cultivated saying more in Ohio or Kentucky towards the Midwest. Um, here in the mountains, um, the other side of that coin is if you're growing saying, you probably need a 10-foot high fence with guards because there's folks out there ginsenging with headlamps on all night long, and they have no respect for your property. To them, it's a ginseng plant, whether it's on National Forest, in the city park, or in your backyard. If they know it's there, they're going to come and dig it. And I have been robbed. So I, I know what that feels like, too. And, and unfortunately... So the, it almost makes it like... It makes me a little bit like, should I put this in my backyard? I don't necessarily want to look out the window and see some guy... Well, in my yard. With, with the seeds, and I encourage folks to think about this, with the seeds and small rootlets, it's not worth their time. But if they know you've got some big old stuff, they'll do anything they can to get it. Mm. You know, and it's, 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 a, it's a, an animal itself because, you know, I had some very viable sang, and uh, I had some folks thought that they could get by with it. I know who they are. You know who robbed you? I do. And they're, they're, they live close to here. But the problem of it is, is when you go through prosecution, you not only have now that individual mad, but his whole family mad at you. And we live in a small community of 500 plus people here. Maybe his family's a third of that. Oh, this is like, this is, I just did an episode about Hatfield and McCoy's. It's kind of a little bit of that. Yeah, so is it worth it for me to have this, these individuals prosecuted or do I just lay low and catch them at the right time and make peace? Did you, so you haven't confronted them? They know. They know you know. Yep. Man, that's a mean, that's a mean thing to do. They look over their shoulder whenever I go by. You know, they're the ones that's got to sleep at night thinking that... They don't look at you? They look away? Oh, they'll look away. Interesting. They won't make eye contact. No. Yeah. Yeah, that's a dirty... That's dirty to do to someone in a small community like this. Yeah, yeah. But at the same time, you know, it it happens everywhere. I've got friends that grew up in Kentucky, Tennessee, Virginia, Ohio. They've all went through the same thing. 
your best thing is not to talk about, not to advertise it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, <clears throat> on top of having things stolen, you know, you got to think about why'd they do it. You know, I had a local boy stole my ginseng and took it and sold it to a meth dealer. The meth dealer got a hold of me, wasn't enough I wanted to buy my sang back. At that point, it was dry. I said, it's done. You know, I wanted the live roots. He said, well, they was dry when they brought them to me. You know, he, he, he took them on trade oh, I've- for meth and then wanted to sell them back to me, my own roots. So, you know, it's that small of an area. So if I broadcast out my whole story and have that young man prosecuted, there's a lot of people after me. Wow. So I've heard that, that yeah. people will dig for drugs, yes. not for money, for yes. drugs. That's what it is. And yeah. you have firsthand experience of that. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that, that's the, so, you, you know, having learned a lot from Susan, I heard that there is this kind of like dark side to it where there's, you yes. know, very impoverished areas. Mm-hmm. There's, um, you know, drug, like you said, there are a lot of drug stuff that's intertwined into it. And then in, and then, so we haven't even gotten to, so then you're selling it to someone else and then that's going, getting all the way to Asia. Yeah. So I wanted to tell you this. So, wait, is it going through like Chinatown in New York City? Some may. I mean, when I deal with um, my Korean buyers, which usually buy the fresh, uh, I hit New York City. Uh, there's places in California that's looking for roots, and it's, but the majority of it is shipped out whenever it's dry. Dry Sang has the, the, the ability to travel. Fresh sang will rot, mm. you know, because of the changes in temperature, mm. humidity, and whatever. So, you know, that market that's shipped out has the dry. Uh, however, there is folks in the, the Asian community that take it upon themselves to strap fresh sang to them, their body and jump on an airplane and fly into Hong Kong for big money. Are you kidding me? It'll bring a lot of money. A lot of money. The big roots, old roots that we've talked about earlier, you know, there is certain individuals that will take that chance. But to me, it's just like smuggling drugs. So, you know, eventually you're going to get caught. And so what are they technically doing that's illegal? If there's no sighty stuff, like what are they doing? Well, when I sell ginseng to anybody outside of the state, it has to have a certificate. Mm -hmm. It has to have a weight weight and measures through a division of forestry. And then CITES also has a record of that because it's now an export going out of state. And the same goes for fur trapping. When you, certain, certain animals, bobcats. Yeah, yeah. So as that dry sang hits a ship, there is a paper that follows along with it everywhere it goes. Got it. So, you know, they can track and see how much is actually exported or what's going on with it. Now, the folks who decide to strap it to their body and take it in there's no paperwork usually. Got it. Got it. So it's undocumented. Yeah. Do, don't know if it's poached. Don't know what's going on. Right. There. They're okay. just looking for the big dollar. I wanted to tell you this. This blew me away. So every week I talk to a bunch of guys. It's kind of like a men's group just, you know, talking about life and, mm-hmm. and uh, all helping all each other out. So last night I was telling them just about how I was learning about ginseng, how I found some in the woods. Uh, one of the guys in my group, he... Uh, he did like the teaching abroad where you, you yeah. teach English. He was in South Korea. He told me last night, he went to a ginseng festival in South Korea and saw a ginseng root 
for forty thousand mm-hmm. dollars. And mm-hmm. I mean, is that like dug out of these mountains? And some guy is like paid like a few bucks for that? Yeah, that's usually what happens, you know. And you know, there's the elusive man route. You know, everybody's digging man roots. You know, and that's uh, a route that has what appears to be a head, two arms, two legs, and a penis. Um, Looks I like have, a person. Yes, and I have I have a couple of those, but my buyers don't want to pay me for them. You know, it's just to them, unless it's a big, heavy route, it's just a common route. But the right buyer may pay more. I just haven't found that right buyer for the uh, the ginseng that resembles a man. So, you know, I, I do see some folks that um, get paid more for some roots, but I don't think they do the volume that a lot of us do, you know, and I'm into quality and that's what we, we strive to get. And so as people come to me that want to plant roots, I like to be able to give them the top quality, um, old roots that will produce big tops, big berries and make them happy and look good in their botanical garden. Mm. Mm. And so now that we've kind of tracked where it's going Mm -hmm. so it's getting to asia why is it so coveted there just for someone listening who doesn't know anything about ginseng so it's obviously uh, one of the most powerful medicines in eastern medicine right is it mainly for medicine i know there's also like an element of like a trophy element right like the big moguls like a big asian businessman might have a root it's not for medicine it's just to hang on their wall. It's like a trophy, right? There's exactly. Di- you know, cultural um, status. One of my buyers uh, from North Carolina, um, he saved and worked all of his life to send his son to the United States to go to Duke University. He wanted him to get away from their, their at- actual heritage and get over into the States and, and do something. Well, that boy, um, while he was in college, got with some buddies and they went out and dug a few pieces of ginseng. He sent one of those roots, probably illegally, back to his dad. And it was a symbol of, thanks, Dad. I know what you did for me. That man packed up the rest of his family and moved to to here in the States and lived a, a, a very poor life for about eight years. And then he finally got noticed as a contractor and picked up a business and has grown and now is a preacher and has his own church that has about 250 people in his mm. congregation. Mm. So, you know, that man picked up and changed his life because of a root. A root that his son sent him from down in North Carolina. Mm. You know, they were, their whole family, you know, we're talking about mom, dad, sisters, brothers, an aunt, an uncle, they all moved. From where? From Asia? Yeah. Wow. Okay. They're Korean. Mm. So, you know, he, he, he'll be up here in a couple of weeks. Mm. You know, he buys from me every year. And for, they, for home use, for medicinal use or what? Well, from what I understand, you know, I can text him and he can text me back and, and we can hit the translate button and understand each other. But when we're face to face and very little reception... Sometimes it's hard, but from what I gathered from him, there's 250 people in his congregation in his church, and all 250 people eat ginseng every day. Oh, my Lord. Because they know that their families have used it for thousands of years, and they know that it's a healing medicine, and it's preventive. You know, we're, we're dealing, with, dealing with COVID, post-COVID, you know, whatever. 
these people were, they're boosting their immune system and staying above it before it ever hits them. So, you know, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. So, mm. you know, to them, a little bit of ginseng every day is better than getting COVID and having a big, big problem to deal with in their health. So I think they're pretty smart, really. And is the, the Asian, from what I gather, the Asian wild ginseng has been basically dug out, annihilated. Yep. Because they, they know the value of it. And, and, you know, whenever you're dealing with a, an adaptogen that can heal so many different things in your body, and our doctors here in the United States have no idea. No can idea. you just, just say there's a hunter listening who doesn't know much about herbalism? Can you just say what an adaptogen is? Well, that is a plant that will, say you're having liver problems, you know, help detox your liver. Maybe you have a stress problem. It will lower your stress. It, it moves into the areas that your body's desired help, you know, and um, you don't get that immediately. You do get the energy immediately, and you may get some good sleep at nights, or you may have sleepless nights. It depends on your dosage of ginseng. And once you regulate it and get it controlled, and you know that two or three drops of a tincture is plenty, versus a whole dropper and you're laying there at night and your eyes are blinking because you can't go to sleep. <laughs> uh, and I've, I've, I've experienced that and that's through trial and error, but, um, and it also different types of roots, you know, you're looking at old roots versus just a common run that's seven to 10 years old. It it's ginseng, but it won't have the same effect on your body, but the adaptogen part, you know, uh, inflammation, you know, it can help your body deal with inflammation. It, it can help your mind clear itself releases the brain fog and you know there's so much stuff so an adaptogen it it goes to the areas that you need help in your body and you know with the asian market they've used it for so many years it's a daily regimen mm -hmm. so it's just like getting up in the morning and taking your diabetes medicine or whatever you know they take ginseng my lady vivian who you've met mm -hmm. Um, for a time, she was buying, I guess it must be farmed, farmed ginseng, red ginseng, I believe, yep. from Asia. And she was, it was definitely helping just yep. with her focus, you know, being able to work during the day, et cetera. Well, and that's farmed. Not, not to, um, yeah, farmed tells me a couple of things, you know, to farm large patches of ginseng, it will grow and do good as long as it's not touching. If the tops touch one another, you'll get a blight. Mm. To prevent that blight on such large farms, they spray it. Mm. So I you wanna, of don't course, do that. You want to watch out. I, I do the best I can to stay organic, and um, I, I space our plants out and plant them in natural um, environments and try to build ecosystems with companion plants. Whenever you put all of one plant in the general area, mm -hmm. you're opening up a whole new path of um, problems. You know, mm -hmm. it, it could be anything from blights to it, it may wipe out your whole plant, your whole patch, you know, because of a fungus that gets in there. So, yeah, you know, and, and the farm stuff that's bought in stores, unfortunately, I would bet 99.9% .9 of it has been sprayed. Sure. And, uh, I mean, you, isn't it in like Red Bull? Well, there is some Red Bull. I think I seen an advertisement earlier this year. Mountain Dew's even got ginseng in it. So now. what? So where is that coming from? This is like enormous. Well, mass you're, you're looking at um, in the Midwest. There's farms okay. that grow um, shade ginseng. 
But what's really crazy is after they grow and they harvest it in eight years, ginseng can't be planted back on that same property due to the fact that the ground's like it's poisoned. My and God. You, it'll grow other plants like golden seal and cohosh, but it will not grow ginseng, not very profitable. And I have a friend in, um, over in uh, Maryland that has taught me a lot about that. And um, I have friends in the Midwest, um, Paul Sue and Dr. Ming. They both grow. They're probably some of the largest exporters, and they'll back that up. They'll jump from um, lease land to lease land probably every eight to ten years mm. to get a new start. And, mm. uh, you know, a, a, a farm ginseng plant that's been farmed for eight to ten years is probably big enough to sell. Mm. But again, it doesn't have the stress rings. The stress rings on the plant or the root is what a lot of the market's looking for because mm. it'll also tell them the medicinal value of that. Mm. If I take a wild ginseng and put it in tilled soil, the rings become separated and they're more of a slick carrot look and it's less valuable. Mm. Now, t speaking about the medicinal value, I listened to you on Inside Appalachia it's like a podcast radio show mm -hmm. and they were doing an episode about forest farming. Mm -hmm. And one of the most amazing things that I heard from you was that you were helping some folks who opiate have opiate addictions. Yep. Yep. And I would love to hear more about that. You know, it's not just ginseng. There's some other plants out there, um, but ginseng is a big part of it. A lot of the problem with opioids, opioids is the folks have become really depressed even if they want to come clean and they're trying to get clean, their energy level is really low. So with the ginseng, it'll help with that. And it'll also help in other areas with their mind, the stress. And um, I've got two guys here in town that has, that's changed their life because of ginseng. Can you say anything more? Are these like your friends or how did you These, these, these folks had... Um, seen and heard that we were into herbs and maybe their parents or their their family members had said hey do you have anything to help them you know they've they've went through the suboxions and whatever government drugs that's out there to try to step them off of opioids and they're really trying they want to get clean they want to do better and and that was um three and a half years, four years ago that we've started tending to a few of those folks and today they're doing pretty good. And off, totally off of the opiates? At my knowledge, they are, but you know, everybody could have a relapse and I don't want to brag that they're yeah. totally off. How uh, did they get in? Do you know how they got, was it just? Uh, one of them had uh, actually been hunting and fell out of a tree stand and um, the doctors had prescribed uh, a real high pain pill for a long period of time and and then there was another one who was involved in a car wreck and again th they were prescribed uh, high doses of pain medicine and, and they were good people and they're still good people it's just you know just because a doctor's prescribing you medicine doesn't mean their intentions is always to heal you they only make money if you come back i mean god this stuff makes me so upset. Like it's like border. I don't. I mean, it's like borderline evil to to rob someone of their life through some substance, which will literally just. Well, we all them. know that here in West Virginia, there was what thirteen million dollars sold in pain pills in one small town. So you know, who is the drug dealer? 
You know, they, they say it's the guy out here on the street, but he got them from somewhere. He didn't make them, you know, and to have that much poured into one county here in West Virginia, um, I dare say it's Big Farmer or someone else that's involved. And it's not just the local guy who had a couple extra trying to sell to get money. So. Was that down south? Yes, it was. Okay, I think it might have been the Logan County area. Yes, yeah. Mm-hmm. God, man, that's so gross. Mm-hmm. Um, um, let's see, what was I going to say about that? But we've lost a lot of young people here in our community in the last 10 years due to overdose. And, you know, if, if I could save one or two by just offering some ginseng, and, and I would do it, you know, because everybody's valuable, you know, and... I don't do it for the money. You know, it's it's nice to have a little extra money, but at the same time, I'd like to help people, you know, and, and see them turn their life around. And that some of my conversations with Susan uh, back a few years ago were so fascinating because it's like, here is this, here is this plant that is growing in a region, a region that is afflicted with opiate addiction, and this plant can help so much, and yet this plant is being sent across the world. Yep. Like, how strange. Like, the medicine is right here. It's yep. in the backyards of the people who need it. My great-grandfather, who worked in the logging camps here in the late 1800s, early 1900s, um, told me that there was a plant or a root or bark out there, and here in this Randolph County, pretty much help cure or defeat any type of flu or fungus that someone would come up with. Incredible. You just, you just got to, you know, listen to the old folks and learn from them. You know, not all of it was always wrote in books, but trial and error, I guess a lot of it. But, um, and he taught us some stuff and I've passed it on to folks through our, uh, our little gig. And, you know, we try to help people. Um, dealing with COVID was a, a great, great, challenge in the last two years but we found a few things that will help combat that and also help maybe cure them and help them recover and uh, it's amazing because a lot of people only believe in doctors and pharmacists but you know whenever you've had a lot of trial and error and then you get a few people who are happy to try something else and they give you the feedback of wow thanks you know, you've done something good, you know, and it, it, it warms your heart. It's powerful. It is. We drank chaga about throughout the whole COVID. Yep. We drank chaga yep. from Chaga's, one that I found. Chaga is really good for that. Um, Golden Seal was really what we had helped a lot of people with um, due to the buildup and the drainage in their head and chest. And uh, Moyen uh, Leaf, we... we put that out there to some folks and just recently this past week um, my physical therapist uh, who sells a lot of our products he had a little head and chest thing going on and he told me yesterday he said man he said that leaf and that golden seal just cleared me right up Mm. so you know it's i'm not trying to be a doctor it's just good good medicine doesn't have to be manufactured to a plant Mm. and with a lot of additives and chemicals added Mm. we're dealing with whole natural product that i believe is strong or if not stronger than most things you can buy over the counter Mm. okay a little bit of a transition when you're looking for ginseng in the woods Mm -hmm. so i have stumbled into it once it just appeared in front of me yesterday i went out looking for it and i found maybe 10 to 12 plants 
I really feel like ginseng has like a vibe, like an energy. Like there's all these lookalikes where when I first went out for the ginseng symposium, we did a field trip. I couldn't, I didn't, I couldn't even see it when someone's pointing at it. You know, it looks so much like, um, you know, it looks so much like Virginia creeper. It looks a little bit like the baby uh, hickory trees. Yes. Yeah. Uh, um, it even sometimes it, the little babies look a little bit like poison ivy, and there's a handful of things that it looks like. But I feel like when you approach the actual ginseng, it has a vibe, like you can just feel that that's what that's. Do you know? Do you are you able to articulate that? Like, do you feel that? Like what? it it stands out. It like looks at you almost like an animal or something. Whenever I was younger, um. You know, I, I grew up poor, and um, I went out after ginseng and had several days of just looking and wondering. And then I come home, and my grandfather said, well, where was you at? And I'd tell him, he goes, well, why didn't you go on this side of the cove? I was like, because it was full of nettles, and it's thick, and it's rocky and steep. He said, well, that's where it grows. Oh. So I went back the next day and I crawled up through the nettles and I was itchy and sweaty and boy, I was aggravated. And I stopped and wiped my brow off and I looked down and there it was. I was like, wow, he was right. And I did get that right then. And I was like, wow, you know, now I know where to look for it. It's got to be everywhere. And I, I found several that day. But it, it was that aha thought. It was like, wow, you know, I, I sort of narrowed it down. And, you know, then you look for the beech trees or the sugar maples where they grow more because of the calcium that comes off the leaves. And, you know, it's it's an education process, too. I mean, it's not just a lucky me. It's learning to know what it's around. Maybe a maidenhair fern or a pointer fern that, you know, is a good companion plant as well as uh, cohosh, uh, black cohosh and blue cohosh. They're good indicators that you're you're in good sand country. So, you know, there's a lot to learn, and it's about the woods, you know. There's a dry side, there's a wet side, there's a, an area that gets browsed off by the deer. Deer love to eat ginseng and some other medicinal plants. But if you get into an old cut that has a lot of treetops in it and it's really hard for the deer to go through, you'll find those plants growing in there. They don't get browsed off. Now, if it's wide open and the deer can browse and... and walk freely it's probably a little harder to find because they've ate the top off of it so uh jim mcgraw uh, from wvu uh mm -hmm. we was down at the u mountain center oh it's a couple years ago and we was talking about ginseng and he said that one of the biggest things that he feels is a problem with ginseng is deer browse and you know if a, a deer browses off a plant that's not quite a two-prong more than likely that plant is done. So, you know, for two to three years, it comes up as a two, uh, little three leaf and then maybe a, a, a five leaf on the third year. But before it becomes a two prong, if it's browsed off, that's, that ginseng's gone. You know, even if it had a little bit of a root, it's just not going to come back. So the deer brows, they like that ginseng, and they like the big tops as well as the little ones. So if they can get to it easy, it'll probably get eaten off. So there's, there's another problem, not just the poaching, but there's other varmints and critters out there that like to eat on the plant and root itself.
Could you talk a little bit more about growing up? Because that was one of the coolest parts on the inside Appalachia. Yeah, um, you know, I, I I dug ginseng and uh, took it into a. <laughs> here in town was a um, a beer joint slash poker saloon slash root buyer, and uh, we'd go down to Willard Kearns' place. He's deceased now, and he had a set of scales and. You might have a pocket full and you may only have two or three, but he would give you some cash for it. And, you know, one year I saved up enough to get me some new school clothes. And as I turned 15, I was a little bit bigger and able to get away from my my smaller areas and hike a little bit further back into the woods. And I dug a good bit that summer. I sold $500 and I bought my first car. It was a 74 Volkswagen Beetle. And uh, the guy, he wanted a little bit more and, and he come down because I had $500 cash, which I just sold my sang to Willard. And uh, it, it was a good feeling that I earned it, you know, and I worked hard in the woods to get it. Uh, it wasn't something that my parents gave me, you know. That's powerful. Yeah. That's beautiful and powerful. Yeah. Um, uh, two things that are coming up. One, I noticed, um, I noticed, so I got a little bit into fur trapping. Mm-hmm. And Vivian, she got me like a little like a little brochure from the early 1900s. And, you know, it has like a beautiful illustration of a fox. And then it has all this information about, and then it has all like the prices for the pelts. And then you get to the back and it's all the roots. It's ginseng and golden seal. And I was like, you know, I learned about all these plants through the herbalism world. So I was almost shocked to see the connection with like fur trappers and to see root diggers and fur trappers are like kind of, is a thing. Yep. Well, you know, furs um, goes hand in hand with off-root buyers as well as ginseng buyers. But the problem of it is, is the market. The market has died. Um, China was taking a lot of the furs, but right now we're experiencing some some turmoil between the United States and China. And it could also impact the price of the roots this year as far as ginseng. Um, here in my shop, you can see a lot of bags that I've bought up that's setting full of off roots that's waiting on a buyer to come and pick up that's money tied up you know and you get so much money out and you can't buy the fresh stuff to to roll over and make your money and you're waiting on your buyer to come and pick up it it it, it gets hard so i can only imagine holding furs mm. i've no guys that's held furs for a couple of years waiting on the market to come back and they're probably either still holding them or probably flushed them yeah the fur market is basically dead it is it is did you ever do any of that as a kid, I trapped, yeah, but I didn't buy furs, no. Um, what what critters were you going for? Uh, actually, the coon, the fox, and bobcat was probably the muskrats. There was some muskrat in the area along the ditch lines that we got, but um, at that point, I think uh, a possum was bringing 250 to $5, and today, you probably wouldn't even haul it in to skin it for quarter you mm-hmm. know it you can't get nothing out of it you mm-hmm. know but at the same time um and would you sell your pelts yeah i did sell my pelts actually they went to a local buyer who sold to um, bernard hershey up in pennsylvania and he was the big exporter on the, the pelts yeah so this is something that i've been thinking about a lot um before talking with you so like i told you i went and got my ginseng license so i stood in line with the real deal ginseng mm-hmm. hunters in my area um, a few years ago, I went to down really far in Virginia, um, 
Southwestern Virginia, I went to a fur handling workshop. So I got to be around like real deal uh, trappers right. and like some rough guys. And what really blew my mind was seeing these guys and thinking about the person digging this or the person trapping, you know, now there's no trapping industry, but say it was earlier in the 1900s. Here's the kind of guy who's, di who's digging this or trapping. And then this is gonna be worn in the streets of New York or Paris by like the most beautiful model. Just seeing th the travel of, uh, you know, natural resources, you know, I, it's, it's an animal or it's a plant, but to see the, how, the, the, just the journey that this living thing from earth goes on, is, it just blows my mind mm -hmm. to see like who goes out and get it. You know, it's like who the miners, you know, seeing who is doing the labor, especially out in like a more remote or wilderness setting. And then, you know, even if you go back to like the old trappers of their, the 1800s, just, you know, they're out west, beaver trapping, like freezing to death. And then that is being going all the way to London to be made into nice hats for the gentlemen and right. the ladies. It's just, that just like blows my mind. And that goes back to what we were saying about ginseng. Like you've got guys who are literally digging this for meth. Mm -hmm. And then that is ending up in a in a in a skyscraper in in Asia. Mm -hmm. Blows yeah. my mind. It does. Yeah. You know, you just mentioned leather. We was um, at the Smithsonian this year. We was invited down, and um, there was some mushroom folks there who were growing mushrooms and creating leather out of mushrooms. Wow. Which is. It looked and felt so much like leather. It was unreal. So, you know. The industry changes. Maybe the desire for leather is still there, but the thoughts of how to make leather has changed. Wow. Maybe not from the animals. Maybe we can do it more sustainably. Fascinating. Growing mushrooms or using mushrooms. And uh, that's pretty cool in, a, in my cool. mind. Um, this past week, I went out and harvested some hen of the woods. And, and for some reason, in my mind, I was like, wow, there's a bunch. I'm going to take a bunch. And I left some. But I took more than I really could eat. So I reached out to a friend. I said, hey, I said, what would you do if you had 20 pounds of hand in the woods extra? He said, I'd make jerky. So I cleaned up the rest of what I had and marinated and made jerky. And I'll let you try some. It, How did that come out? It turned well. It did real wow, well. Wow. Yeah, that's was, really cool. Yeah. So now we're looking at imitation leather. Now we're looking at maybe imitation meat that's pretty cool yeah is hen of the woods different than chicken of the woods yes okay yes. that's what i yeah. thought mm -hmm. i'm not i've never i'm not familiar with hen of the woods yeah. i've heard of it but yeah. i haven't found it but yeah so you know with what we're into right now we're looking more towards what the industry's going towards and from what we're seeing the trend is in wild medicinal mushrooms mm. so um a lot of health benefits there as far as for um Boosting your immune, as you know, with mm -hmm. the chaga and uh, everything to arthritis, to inflammation, and also cancer eating. So, you know, a lot of your, not a lot, but several of your mm -hmm. mushrooms like turkey tail and such, uh, chaga too, will mm -hmm. eat cancer cells. So um, I'm hoping that, you know, we're finding something new that's going to be around for a while and it helps a lot of people. Mm. You mean for you guys with your business too, moving in a, a little yes, bit different direction? Yes, a little bit, yeah. Um, again, 
to go out and harvest wild mushrooms, I don't see much damage in that. Mm. Where if I'm encouraging folks to go out and dig ginseng, I can't control them as in digging too much and maybe there won't be any next year. But with the mushrooms, you know, there's spores that's dropped just by handling it. Mm. So, you know, I don't really see a, a decline in that like I would in the ginseng industry. So, mm. Are you seeing a decline from when you were digging as a little kid to going out looking around the mountains today? Are you seeing a decline? Is it sustainable to <sighs> let 50 people in the area dig 97 roots? Is that sustainable? There's probably not 97 roots there. Okay. You know, that's they're not going to find that. Many. That's that's on paper, mm-hmm. and that's what they're limiting it to, um, because again, they're selling permits. Mm-hmm. Did they actually go out and study each hollow, like Jim McGraw did, to see how many was there in early spring, and versus how many was there a month and a half later after the deer ate the tops off? So if the deer's eating, say a third of the tops, or maybe half of the tops, I think there's always going to be ginseng there. Um, with the diggers, from what I see when they bring it in, a lot of times they dig stuff they shouldn't. Mm. And I'm fortunate that they're keeping it fresh so I can get it in the right hands to be replanted. Mm. So, you know, there's, there's, there's programs out there that has some grants that's pushing to get it put back in the ground. And we try to follow along and be a part of those programs. Um, but I don't like to encourage over digging. Mm. So do you think the permits and regulations are too much? Do I think the permits and regulations are too much? Like, are they allowing for too much? Like, have you noticed when you were a kid, did you find well, it in the woods more? Well, yeah, from the time I was a kid till now, yes, there's okay. been a, a drastic change. Um, drastic. Okay. What, what I see today is a lot of folks are unemployed due to the fact that maybe they have drugs in their system. Whether they could go to work today and perform a, 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 and be uh, productive because they smoked maybe marijuana over the weekend and today's Tuesday and they hadn't had any since Sunday, I think they could probably work and be pretty productive. But with a drug test, they're being held back and they can't get that job. Mm. Um, it's to me, they're, they're in a cycle where, you know, at one time there was an alcohol prohibition mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. Maybe we're going through that with the, the marijuana hemp slash whatever else is coming at us. Uh, I'm not promoting it all. I'm just saying that, you know, whenever yeah, you were you, saying even at the lumber yard, a few, yeah. a few houses down there doing drug tests yeah, just know, for pot. Yeah. So whenever you have someone that's saying, sorry, I can't hire you because you flunked a drug test. Well, that could have been from 14 to 21 days prior to that test. You know, if it was a test that could detect whether they smoked it that morning before they come to work or last night before they went to bed, I I would jive with that. I'd I'd roll with that. But, you know, they was out on a holiday weekend, a three-day weekend, they smoked a little marijuana or whatever, now they can't get a job. So, you know, there's a lot of good people that's without work. So where do they go to? Well, they're in the woods. Mm. They're looking for mushrooms. They're looking for ginseng. They're looking for some way to support their family. Mm. Just because they lost their job doesn't mean they're bad people. It's, mm-hmm. it's we got to change. You know, we got to change this whole world to understand that just because they flunked a drug test for marijuana that they smoked 14 to 20 days ago, and they was at work and they're actually clean and sober, 
but they lost their job. Yeah, and then and then you go to a doctor and they give you opiates. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I can go down here and tell them my back hurts and they'll give me a bunch of pain pills. And well, if I I really don't need the pain pills, but I need the money, I'm sure I could find twenty, thirty people that would buy my mm-hmm. pain pills. Yeah, you know. So there is another commerce that is black market. You mm-hmm. know, and I don't promote that. I, I don't want to even sound like I do. It's just the fact that what have we done to our work society everybody mm. says there's no one wanting to work i think there is people wanting to work mm. it's just certain rules and regulations have changed since the 80s i left here in 86 and by 88 the plant the uh, kitchen cabinet factory that i worked for was doing drug tests and i can remember the first week that they done that they lost 32 people out of 400 mm. and they only done 42 people so out of 42 people, 32 lost their job. Mm. And that was, you know, when I started realizing, hey, you know, there's, there's people out here that was holding a job doing good. Mm-hmm. Now it's unemployed because they may have smoked pot in the last month. Mm. Yeah. Not the day of or the, day, the night prior yeah, to, of course, but of course. it stays in your system of so course. long. Yeah. And you can drink all weekend long. And you can drink <laughs> and feel so bad and go to work yeah. and there ain't much they can do to you. Man, <laughs> because man. it's taxed. Mm-hmm. It goes back to alcohol's taxed. Well, I think that's changed in a lot of places. In Virginia, it's coming. In it's Virginia, coming, you can. Big just, pharma doesn't want to see that happen. It's right. just like <clears throat> me being able to encapsule ginseng and golden seal and help people. I'm sure that they don't like that. Right. Exactly. They, healing yourself. Yes. Or want, even I told you about Vivian. She's yes. healing herself. She's gone off of all medicines. She's been doing deep reflection, doing meditation and breathing work. And they that's don't wonderful. Want and she probably feels better, you she, know. She more do- than any other period in her life. Yeah, you know, and it, it's remarkable because when we help folks with some of the things that we do to get the testimonies back, wow, you know, it, it, it opens your eyes. It makes you feel good. It's not about the money. It's like, wow, I helped somebody. I helped them. One of your neighbors. Well, my neighbors, mm-hmm. someone in the community. There's a pastor here in town. Um, I'll go over this real quick. Uh, he was diagnosed with prostate cancer, and uh, I was too. And um, I had an operation and uh, didn't go so well. And uh, he was talking to me. He's like, well, what did you do? And I gave him my referral, and I said, this is the doctor I went to. I said, but really, I wouldn't go to him. And he asked me why, and I told him. And I said, I've really been doing a lot of research on it because my cancer's come back. And he said, well, he said, he told me 99% of his clients, I said, well, I guess I was one. But I said, I found three others in the last month that went to the same doctor. And he goes, well, what are you doing now? I said, well, I've been doing a mix of the Super 5 mushrooms that, you know, wild harvest mushrooms. And I said, uh, the last time I went to the doctor, he told me whatever I was doing to keep it up because my numbers was going down. He said, well, can I buy that? And I said, legally, I can't buy it. But I said, let me, sit, let me just give you some to try, a sample. And last week, he got a hold of my mom and dad. And this is a preacher. And told them that he was so happy to talk to me because his numbers was going down. And right now, he doesn't need to have an operation. So, you know, it's... And now that guy's going to go to his church and tell the people in his congregation the good, the good news. You know, and that's, that's what we want spread. You know, it's... There's something out there for everybody. You just got to find it. You got to want to heal yourself. Can you say what mushrooms? Yeah, uh, we're doing the... Um, Chaga, Rishi, uh, Turkey Tail, uh, Cordyceps, 
and chaga turkey tail reishi cordyceps i'm forgetting one um <laughs> should know that but anyway those are the the four of the five that's very beneficial um you know turkey tail is really coming along as being known for eating cancer cells so as we we harvest from the wild we dry we we grind and we make up capsules or do tinctures and that gets out into um, the community i'm sure we're going to have more good testimonies i mean personally my numbers had dropped and i thought maybe it was just me wanting them to drop and, and thinking that they were dropping but when the doctor said keep up doing whatever you're doing you're, you're heading the right direction and then you have other people telling you the same thing that you know using your product um, something's right there yeah did you personally go and find the mushrooms yes yes yeah say that Oh, I personally, my wife and I actually took a class to Mushroom Mountain, uh, which was taught by Trad Carter. Uh, Trad, with his knowledge, um, is also um, recognized by the FDA. It wasn't an easy class. It was a two-weekend two or two-day class over a weekend, seven hours per day, just nothing but mushroom identification, and mainly with edible and medicinal mushrooms. Um, he did teach us a lot about the lookalikes that could be harmful or poisonous or deadly, but the focus was on how to identify what was good and what it was good for. And unfortunately, in the state of West Virginia, although I'm certified to do that, I can't legally sell them. So we do offer it to folks um, for free. So to do that, I go out and harvest these wild mushrooms, usually on a daily basis, to provide for the folks and hopefully get more good testimonies and one day when the state says yeah you can do it we'll be ready and i mean to heal yourself is like so powerful instead it, of it makes oh, you feel good it does but helping someone else makes mm, you feel a lot better sure of mm -hmm. course of course yeah. of course um let's see okay kind of going back a little bit okay back to ginseng mm-hmm so there's obviously now these like popular shows, Appalachian Outlaws. That's a big, 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 bad show. I don't right. like it. I don't okay. like it at all. That's what I want to ask you about. So I just watched the, the very first episode, which came out like seven years ago or more. It came out a long time yep. ago. I just watched the very first episode. First of all, I'm wondering, like the really shitty ghost shows, like how fake is this? Mm -hmm. But what really blew my mind was I'm looking at the show and I'm like, I know that road because that's the road I go to my grocery store. And then I start Googling these characters and I'm like, these guys, this is taking place like one hour from where I live. So is this, is it real? Like, is this, is what you're seeing on TV real? Is this bad for ginseng? I mean, it's showing people basically poaching. It's showing people um, like guarding their patches with guns. Is this all like real or is this all like just some crap drummed up for TV? Well, there was a lady in um, Kentucky who shot people last year that was in her ginseng patch. I think she killed one. So some of that's maybe close to being true. Um, you know, there's different characters throughout that program who played to be Barney the badass or whatever. And, you know, be honest with you, there's a lot of different types of ginsengers or, and there's a lot of different foragers. There's the one that's solely in to it for money. And he's going to take everything that's in the woods. Everything. 
Then there's the one who has ethics, who's going to take a third of the mature plants and leave the rest. Maybe take the tops off so no one will find them after he leaves that patch. But uh, And then there's the guy that goes out and digs just a few to take back and plant around his house because he wants his own botanical garden. And maybe sells a couple prizes out of there just to pay for his gas to and from the, the areas that he was in. So there's different people with different ethics, and their morals about harvesting are all different. So that show only showed the bad people. Mm. I'd really like to see a ginseng show about people who are building botanical gardens for the interest of becoming uh, the state's seed bank for when all those plants are gone. Mm. You know, and uh, not tooting my own horn, but that's sort of the path that we follow because with the black cohosh, you know, there's people out there that'll give you an order for 10,000 pounds. That's five ton. That's a lot of cohosh. Mm. And, you know, I do buy it, but I won't buy it all from one guy and I don't buy it all from one county. I try to spread it out. We buy from seven different counties here in the state of West Virginia. And, um, but at the same time, you know, it's still a large harvest. You know, a lot of these guys that, that dig and bring into us, they're on, uh, hunting leases. Hmm. So a lot of that's timberlands that the timber companies don't really care about what they do as long as they don't put a four wheeler path every 10 feet, you know, and that's sort of a, a taboo to them. They don't want people on their lands with four-wheelers. But at the same time, for someone to go and get on a lease, say a lease costs $500, they can earn that money back by foraging for some wild plants off of that lease. So the timber company really doesn't notice it, and they're not really caring too much about it. So that part of it's a win-win. And I think eventually if the state looks at it and really governs the amount of stuff that's being harvested off the, the national forest, you will have to own so much land or be on a couple of leases or a certain amount of acreage of a lease before you can sell. Mm. And that, to me, would be a proper approach, you know, and, and a show that would go back and say, hey, this is a sustainable way to do harvesting versus the Appalachian Outlaws would be a way to clean up the Ginseng Act and the Wild Harvesters Act. You know, if we're, we're sort of marked right now with black eyes as being the rogues and the, the toads that's in the woods that's harvesting or over-harvesting, I think it needs fixed. I really do. Well, and showing what you're part of and a lot of the nonprofits I've worked for who have hired me to illustrate are into forest farming. Forest farming. It's not showing that. So can I, and what's and, interesting, when I read the, the, the Fox Fire, yeah. it's, even these old timers in the 60s, 70s, they would grow. Like they would have little farms, but they would be like under like a little side of their house, like right. in a shaded area. Yeah. Talk about some of the forest farming and, and what those opportunities are for people. And because there's so many of these nonprofits who've been hiring me who are trying to uh, promote and educate and give people resources to forest farm these very valuable and incredible plants? Well, with our forest farming approach is we've been offered to be labeled as organic or you know something equivalent to with a $1,000 payment. I also see people who do similar things to what we're doing that are labeled and paid for that that spray. 
We don't spray. We're above being organic. We are totally working towards our organic approach. Um, one day we would like to set the standard a little bit higher than being known as organic. Organic, um, I know guys who raise maybe ginseng, and two years before they go to sell their ginseng, they quit spraying it. But that doesn't mean there's not chemicals in the roots. Mm. You know, your roots of any plant take out heavy metals, toxins from the soil. So that also puts it into the plant or the root. So that's what's being sold. So, you know, just because the top has no residue on it for the last two years doesn't mean that it's really organic. Mm. Uh, We have found certain plants to use as organic sprays, golden seal. Uh, Golden seal plant uh, is a plant that will break up uh, 15, 20 roots, put it in a five-gallon bucket, let it set in the sun for about a week, and the water will turn a golden collar. And we'll use that to spray our plants to keep back fungus and blight. And even on our vegetable plants, our tomato plants, it works well. But it's totally, totally organic. So you're spraying golden seal water on your ginseng? We call it a golden seal wash. We use spring water or mountain water. Incredible. Yeah. And, you know, that's, that's ways to be above what is norm in the industry. You know, we, we've heard other people say, oh, well, you can do this. You can spray this kind of spray. And I said, nah, I ain't buying no spray. I'm not doing that. So we want ours. I was chem- chemically sensitized, oh, in about 94, 95. And I was working at a UV factory that was spraying moldings with UV. And um, there was a particular element in that uv mix called monomer had zero molecular value and what that means is if you get a drop of it on your skin your skin would absorb it 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 wouldn't lay up on your skin it would go in and get into your bloodstream and i became chemically sensitized so now if i go to a, a restaurant or something and if they tell me that it's all organic i can tell you if it's not because if i taste any type of chemical i get sick so, you know, I've got to really keep my system clean, and I also feel that other people in this world need to keep their systems clean, so we don't spray, you know. And, you know, that's one of the biggest approaches in forest farming that I could give information on to anybody that's wanting to try it. You know, don't overpopulate with one plant. Build a diverse ecosystem with multiple plants that may make up the same setting in the wild, you know, you're, it's, you're kind of trying to make a wild plot, right? That's what you do. Yeah. You know, and we do have certain sections that maybe a four by 10 that we'll, we'll monocrop in, but more or less in our woods, you'll, you'll see a, a dispersed amount of ginseng with golden seal with cohosh. And that's your, your common look in the woods with the, the, the wild eco. And is that becoming its own genre, like a wild simulated? Like, I think are so. people trying yeah. to sell it as totally wild? Or can, is there, is, so there's the cultivated, there's the wild. Is this kind of in the wild middle? Wild simulated. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, and it's all about how you plant it. You know, roots, if you put it in tilled soil, will look like they have been nurtured. And they'll Got grow it. bigger with less stress rings and a smoother appearance, which is less desirable. But I use a, um, I call it a tree spade. It's a dipple bar. 
And it's an old pine tree sapling planter that we'll put into the ground, wiggle back and forth, and it's putting a little V into the ground, and we'll place our roots into that. And it's still compressed soil. So with that compressed soil, you'll still have the wild look. Now, how about a few tips just for planting those seeds? Because I bought a little, like I said, a $20 bag from you guys. How am I going to put those into the ground? Well, you want to take a leaf rake and uh, leaf it, or <laughs> rake an area back, pull all the leaves off of it and the stems and the limbs that's laying there, and you'll have your exposed surface of the ground, maybe with uh, a little bit of the leaf mold, and you will walk over those leaves after you or over the seeds after you disperse the seeds. So you just do free cast out I of your just hand? broadcast it out of my hand. You know, you want them spread out pretty good. And you walk over that area and, and just press that seed into the ground with your foot. Then you'll rake those leaves back over the top of that and cover it with limbs. Because with once limbs. You, because what happens is once you disturb the leaves that sort of been compressed by the rains and the snow, it's now loose and easy to be blown away. The leaves provide a moisture barrier for those seed to help keep the seed moist so it will germinate. So by putting a few limbs over it, it will also keep the leaves from moving off and um, hold down on the deer browse. I'm going to do that. I'm going to do this probably later today or tomorrow. But, uh, you know, again, we talked earlier about deer browse and the deer will browse off the young plants. And I do like a a small brush pile on my areas. And, you know, a couple of years, I'll pull a few of the tops off and and maybe there'd be less brush, but you know, for three to four years, I'd brush it up good, and then you'll see that you got a nice patch of ginseng. So cool, man! Yeah. I'm so excited to, I'm so excited to be a part. I, I so appreciate living in this region that I did not grow up in, and taking part in these cultural, yeah. um, these cultural symbols, and and, I mean, taking part in the flora and fauna. Like, so neat to go out and find it in the woods, so neat to try to grow it in the yard. Yep. I just love it. Um, okay, well, okay, you were mentioning Jim McGraw. So I, I don't know if I met him, but I was around him. Um, like, I did a little filming for the ginseng symposium that United Plant Savers did like five, maybe six years ago. You were there? Yeah. Okay, I don't know if I remember meeting you there. This, I was first, this is my first introduction to all this stuff, mm-hmm. but Jim McGraw was a speaker. You, you met, been mentioning him regarding the deer brows. He also said, um, which I found so cool, was he was saying, so he's the biologist at WVU, mm-hmm. West Virginia University. He's retired since. Okay. Mm-hmm. He was saying he, which I thought was so cool, and I actually illustrated a t-shirt with it. He said that he had noticed that the wood thrush would eat the berries and propagate the seeds and i thought that is so neat you know at our farm at our farm in uh here in randolph county we have seen the increased number of wood thrushes on our farm and it's always around the time that the berries are red and getting ready to drop off so yeah i know what he's talking about they're there and it's sort of cool uh, unless you're trying to harvest those berries for your own use so um yeah, he's he's spot on with that. Have they, you seen him on the berries? Yes, yes. yes. Wow. Yeah. So I was also reading. Do you know Doug Elliott? He's always yeah. Like, I know Doug. I, I want to interview him so bad. He's such he's he's like a folklorist. He's yeah. We've done a thing together at uh, North Bend uh, State Park about three years ago. Yeah, he's so what cool. a performer, man. He's, he's a good. legend. He is. So in his book Wildwoods Wisdom, he wrote about ginseng and he about going out with old timers hunting for it. 
And he was talking about how the wisdom he got from his mentor was to follow the pileated woodpecker. Have you? No. Which I found so strange. Yeah. So he's saying the, the pileated woodpecker can, will lead you to the ginseng. Have you found any indicators in the wild that will help you get in the right, well, that you will know, take I, you to I, the ginseng? I spoke on that earlier. Um, here in our area, I'm looking for certain things that would draw me in that I've learned from my great-grandfather. You know, I'm looking for sugar maples growing on the northeast-facing slope. Uh, steeper the elevation, sometimes the better, the rougher it is to get through, and the ground cover. You know, you're looking for companion plants. So yep. not so much the birds that you've mentioned. You're but looking for, for flora. Flora, yeah. And I'm looking for beech trees that put off the calcium. Ginseng loves calcium. So if that thrush may have taken the seed and maybe dropped it under a sugar maple or a beech, yeah, that's where it's growing. So um, grapevines in, in thick areas mm, where there's grape wild vine. grapes okay. growing, I'll find a lot of ginseng. But the nettles, the nettles keep a lot of people back uh, and a lot of varmints and critters. Uh, so, um, yeah, there's certain things that's indicators that I look for. And, again, the maidenhair fern, a pointer fern. Uh, they're, they're in around those. Well, well, that's exactly where I found it yesterday. So I want to tell you about yesterday. So I had seen ginseng once a few months ago is in a state park. I saw it on the ground. I was like, so amazed. There's a four prong. So oh. that's much older. Um, and so obviously you're not allowed to dig that, but it was just beautiful to behold. And I was so pumped to finally have seen it in the wild. I've seen where people have planted it. I've been to some of these farms through United Plant Savers. Um, so yesterday I was like, I know I'm going to come speak with Ed today. I was like, I got to go on a ginseng hunt. So for the, I, you know, I told you weeks ago, I went and got the permit. So you're allowed to go into national forest. Um, so for days I've been having this feeling that I know that not that I know, not like consciously know, but a feeling go there, mm -hmm. go there. So yesterday i drive to the bottom of this hollow. It's very dark, very hemlocky. I get out, you know, and now I've made it a habit to like pray before any type of hunt. So I got on one knee saying, you know, just to get in the right headspace. And I, I, you know, I say, um, I pray to God. I, I pray to the hunting gods, the ancient, you know, Greek hunting gods. And then I prayed to ginseng, you know, and I stand up. I took two steps off the hardtop and I looked down and there was a, t a little baby ginseng right at my foot. Hmm. I couldn't believe it. But that's not where I felt pulled to. So I went 50 minutes, 30 minutes straight up this mountain. And granted, I had prayed for protection from rattlesnakes because turkey season, I almost stepped on a rattlesnake up in this area, yeah. up on the rocks. So I go straight up, straight up the top, but you have to take breaks because it's so damn steep. You're like out of breath. Finally go over the top and I walk straight into a three-pronger. Awesome. I couldn't believe it. And it was in, it was right on the edge of hardwood and maple maple patch with the beach like you said mm -hmm. the soil black, black. super black yeah, yeah. It, north facing slope there was cohosh down there there were those ferns i'm not i don't know how to id the different ferns yet but mm -hmm. there were definitely ferns right there um and i found about 12 plants like i told you there was two three prongers which would have been legal and then the other ones were twos and little babies mm -hmm. and i went then i went further all the way down to the bottom in, until it turned into a hollow in a creek and it, it was just a patch of rhododendron it didn't seem like that was the right area so i went back up it was higher up on the ridge but um yeah it was just it was so amazing to do the hunt and to feel 
pulled by the ginseng to to see the environment that it grows in incredible yeah i mean there will be days that you walk and walk and walk and never see one and you're like man that was a good area this should have been something there and then there's days you'll walk as soon as you get out of the car and, and go over the road bank and you're like wow here's sang here's sang and you know mm. you, you it's just certain areas whether it's been hit you know, there's so many people out looking for it. Um, I think so far this year we've had close to 60 different people who's come in to sell us ginseng. Do they have to show you their permit? I have to have a driver's license. Okay. Now, the permit, that oh. would be for the National Forest. Ah, so they could be digging private land. It could be like we're going back to yes. the, the leases or the hunting leases. So a lot of people dig on those leases to help pay for the Right. Lease. So um, I'm hoping that's where a lot of that's come from. Right. But I'm sure it's a little of, hard. Yeah, I'm sure that there's some that's came from the national force. But some of my diggers do have national force permits. And uh, again, though, uh, the amount of ginseng that you can harvest with the permit you buy, it's almost a wash. Mm. By the time you pay for your permits and you drive to where you can dig. So you, you really looking for that land you can get on a lease to be able to go out and dig X amount without having to regulate it. Come a little closer. Because sometimes, you know, there's, there's um, some nice routes that you would like to take, but legally you can't do the numbers. Here's something I noticed. So I dug up one, one three-prong. Mm -hmm. So normally when you transplant a plant, the leaves die in one second. The yeah. ginseng, the leaves stay hard like st for like 10 hours. Yeah. And I'm like, this is probably part of that potency. And I know in like the Eastern medicine, it's also, isn't it like an aphrodisiac, like a, like arousing? And like, doesn't it bring you back your youthful vitality for right. old men, their sexual vitality? Like I could see that the fact that the leaves were still erect, like for hours and hours after being exhumed, well, you one can of the, see the potency. One of the things with ginseng, ginseng is two-thirds water mm. in that root. So that root is feeding that plant. You can actually increase the size of your root by pinching the berry pods off early spring as it comes up and unfolds from the earth. Take the berry peduncle and clip it off so therefore the power or the energy that that plant is putting off will go to the root mm. and it'll grow the root instead of the berries. So, you know, as a farmer, you'll learn certain tricks of the trade like that. If you're looking to do roots, I don't look to sell my roots. I sell rootlets. So I raise big plants to give me big pods of berries so I can grow rootlets. Mm. Um, someone said, well, you ask a lot for your berries. I said, yes, I do. But mine come from the wild genetics, and in four to five years, each one of them plants is worth, what, 8 to $12. Mm. So if you don't want to give me 30 cents on the berry, I don't have to sell it to you. I'll plant it because I can make more money by raising the juveniles mm. and you know, selling rootlets. That's something I noticed in the regulations. They don't want you putting cultivated seeds out in the woods. Nope. So, Because I, I was like, oh, well, before I read that, I was like, well, why don't I buy seeds and just walk around the woods and be popping them? And they don't want you doing that. 
West Virginia is one of the few states that doesn't want you to do that. Mm. Other states, I don't think there's quite as much of a hassle. I'm in a lot of different ginseng forums in different states, and everybody has their own coordinator. Mm. So until we get everybody on board, yeah, West Virginia is not up with that. Reason being is a lot of the seeds that come off of cultivation have blight, and we've mm. talked about that earlier. Okay. So they're afraid that you're going to take that blight into the forest and spread it. That makes perfect so, sense. But, you know, there's also people who contradict that. You know, um, Jim McGraw is someone I listen to a lot. Um, Bob Bifus is someone I listen to a lot. Bob was with uh, Cornell University and taught there for many years, and I, I consider him as a mentor because I've learned a lot from Bob. Bob said planet mm. you know what happens is a lot of ginseng won't live due to deer browse mm. again we're bringing back the deer browse so if you had a pound of seed which is approximately 7,000 seed in reality you're lucky to get 30% of them to grow mm. Mm. so was it blight was it you know deer browse mm. the numbers are numbers it goes back to you're lucky to get 30% of that seed. Mm. Well, so, I, hope, I hope to get something out of the little bag yeah. I got from you. Well, last year, you know, we we had some seed. I had extra seed. So I was giving my diggers um, an, a quarter ounce of seed for every pound that they brought in. So a quarter ounce, we're looking around 400 seed. You know, if they take that out in their ginseng areas, everywhere they dug one or two plants, if they'd put a dozen seed, you know, we're trying to put back, but at the same time, you know, the state doesn't want you doing that. No. Right, right, mm -hmm. right, right. I guess on private land, it's okay, going to be Private right. land's okay, but they still really don't want you doing it. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Okay, maybe to kind of cl start closing this up, um, you know, I kind of told you over the phone, we, you have been telling stories. I mean, the stuff you told about your the, trying to help some people out with the opiates, very powerful. Um do you got anything? So I told you on the phone, I love like strange experiences in the woods. I know you have been, you're an, you're an outdoorsman through and through, been a hunter your whole life. Like, do you have any, is there anything folklore from growing up here? Any weird experience as a child? Anything like that from living here in the mountains? Well, this may be a little off topic, but it, it really goes back to a program that we can uh, put together is called Plant the Seed. Uh, I was going into the schools here in Randolph County and teaching kids how to grow ginseng. And what I was leading into was how to grow money. Because a lot of these kids come from um, lower income homes and in the local school, 35% of the kids that go there are raised by someone other than their parents. You know, and if, if you go through life thinking, I don't have a chance, it'll bring you down. So we told them, we want to teach you how to grow money. You don't have to have a big farm. You don't have to have a big farm tractor. You just have to have a shaded area, a brushy area, a piece of property that no one really considers valuable. And I was giving them out 
just a little bag of seeds, maybe a hundred seeds, 50 to a hundred seeds. And these kids was excited. They were going home telling their parents they was going to help get groceries. They was going to grow some money. I got shut down by the state. They told me I was breaking the law. I didn't have them doing, they wasn't getting determinations done. There's a thing called a determination if you're going to grow ginseng. You got to notify the state forced and tell them they got to come out with a forester, mark the area that you're planting the seeds on, and they got to know that five satellites can see that area. That's a determination. And they got to see that there's no ginseng growing there before you plant. So I thought it was a good program. The kids was excited. And um, lo and behold, the state told me I was breaking the law and I need to shut it down. So Plant the Seed got noticed by um, uh, a foundation who wanted to put money behind us. And I said, well, I can't do ginseng seeds anymore. They said, but can't you teach them how to grow food? I said, yeah, I can. And they said, do you realize how valuable a tomato is? And I was like, well, I do because I grow my tomatoes. And they said, well, but if you grow one tomato and it produces seed, how many other people can then get that seed to grow more tomatoes? And it's just like a pyramid, you know, everything below that one tomato is now lots of tomatoes. So we, we went back to the school and started Plant the Seed program full throttle with going into schools, teaching them how to grow, setting up high tunnels, uh, raised beds so they can grow food. And along with that, we've done um, Farm to Senior, where we gathered up food and took to the seniors who were raising their grandkids or great-grandkids because their kids had got hooked on opioids and they were no longer in the scene. And um, I realized that some of the grandparents was a little bit ashamed. They didn't want to take food and... They were living on a fixed income, and now they had three extra kids to feed. Grandpa was probably working a, a, a job after being retired or retired or disabled. Uh, now he's going back to work trying to find a little extra money. And um, we were delivering these food, uh, these boxes of food to 60 people um, in Randolph County and some in Tucker County. I'm a bus driver for here in Randolph County Schools. And uh, one of the kids on my bus had said, bus driver, he said, uh, I'm hungry. And I was driving to school that day, and I was like, you know, come on, buddy. Sit down. You know, I'm trying to concentrate on the road. And the next day, he's like, bus driver, I'm hungry. It didn't click. It's two days in a row. Third day, he was at the bus stop. He was on a four-wheeler, and it snowed. He didn't have a coat, and he had wet tennis shoes on. He got on the bus, bus driver, I'm hungry. I was like, man, what's going on here? I, was, I got to thinking, you know, what? why is it like this? Because, you know, we delivered the food to the fall, and this is early, probably late October when this was going on. Well, the fourth day I picked him up, he was radical. He smelled of ammonia really bad almost like a cat urine smell in a, a litter box that should have been thrown over the hill two months ago. Well, he was running up and down the aisle on the bus. He's crawling under the seats, and I, was, I couldn't get him under control. And I told him, I said, as soon as we get to school, we're going to the office. I don't care. And it wasn't him. 
I realized it wasn't him. So I parked the bus and I walked into the school. Well, there come the, the guidance counselor and the principal. They both had him by the shoulders, walking him into the office. I said, well, that's why I'm here. So we walked in and went to talking. And anyway, long story short, Child Protection Services was called twice that day on the kid. They had to change his clothes because of the meth that was in his clothes and in his hair. And, you know, I seen a kid that, and he tried to tell me he was hungry. And I wasn't listening because I was busy driving and trying to, you know, stay focused because I'm on a one-lane road up this holler, you know, and he was really distracting me. And um, this particular incident led to a phone call to Child Protection Services. The second time that day, the principal was there, guidance counselor, a teacher for him and me was in the office and was on the speaker and Child Protection Services had nowhere to put him. And um, called, she, she advised us to call the state police because I pretty well knew that there was more going on at that house than should be and that kid shouldn't be there. So while we was on the phone talking with the state police, the state police was concerned and asked, said, well, do you feel that child's at harm? I said, yeah, I do. He said, well, if I was to go to that house tonight and take him, would you provide him or someone there provide him a place to stay? I said, I'm not here to raise other people's kids, but that, I said, that kid deserves something better. I said, yeah, I'll take him. Well, the state trooper, I guess, went to that house that night, and he didn't see the drug activity that, I guess, in my mind, I envisioned. But everybody at that school knew that kid was high off of meth because he had been in the room where his parents had made it. It was in his hair. It was in his clothes. But, you know, we, we threw up a red flag and tried to say, hey, there's something going on here. It took three months later and the kid was fondled before they ever took him away from that home. Brings a tear to my eye. I'm done. Thank you for sharing that story. I've met some, I know some, a woman down in Tennessee, she's a citizen scientist and she, uh, she works with kids in scenarios like that through her church. And to, I mean, that is the work of a saint to be able to help kids like that because their life is set up for disaster. He's in a good family now. I'm so happy to hear yeah. that. A foster family. Actually, like I say, adopted him and he's such a good kid man he's such a good kid his mom signed away all of her rights she didn't want to deal with it she's on meth that stuff is it i mean it upsets me so much oh it does me too it does i mean i, I like to just to take a child's innocence like that but you know it also gave us more <clears throat> ambition to get into the schools, teach the kids how to grow. And it doesn't have to be ginseng. Food is important. And to give kids hope yeah. in these impoverished areas, to give kids hope yeah. and a future. You know, 
and and to teach them that ginseng can grow you money, but growing a tomato can too, you know, and 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 knowing that you can take the seeds out of that and then propagate it and create several plants that you can give your your family. At the school in Pickens, um, there's t- 32 kids. They raised 500 plants this year and gave out to everybody in their community. Mm. And plant to seed was a part of that. That mm. we went there and we helped them get them started. We we put in a grow lab for them, and they was able to get the plants up to where it, they hit everybody with tomatoes and peppers and okra. Mm. So you know. There is good that come out of that. It may not be ginseng, but you're teaching kids to grow and help be sustainable to help feed their families, their aunts, their uncles, and the people in their community. And they were so happy to give those plants out to their neighbors and their aunts and uncles. It gave them pride. Yes. You like know, it. and now they want to do it on their own. They don't need me there as much, but it's, it's something that Plant a Seed, the program, did for them. I mean, that's amazing that you guys have done that. And to, to help your community like that is incredible and yeah. very, well, very We've powerful. got three high tunnels going up. I donated one to Tigers Valley. We had one donated to uh, Pickens and Beverly had one that was destroyed and we got it back up. So we're, we're working towards it. Awesome, man. Well, thank you for this episode. That was a very powerful story. Um, would, hey, do you want to just, in the last few minutes, do you want to just tell about Shady Grove and the products and if people want to buy something online or anything like that? No, nah, actually, I'd rather talk about plant to seed and get people to uh, donate because uh, we're, we're going even maybe to the U Mountain Center with their school to awesome. put money into that program for forest farming. Um, Shady Grove is a business. Plant to seed is a nonprofit. Mm. It's a 501c3 that people can donate to and use it as a tax write-off, and we have no administration fees, mm. zero Every dollar that comes in probably gets matched by other people donating, and it goes to the kids. Incredible. Yeah. Well, thank you for – I mean, that's the work of God to help yeah. these kids in your region. That's what we want. Mm. Yeah. Thank you, brother. Thank you. Sorry about that. About what? Uh, I got upset.